0: Uh, his call to self denial and cross bearing, uh, his call to prayer, persistent and dependent prayer. And this morning, we have the privilege of following Christ, our King, as he approaches Jerusalem, a passage commonly known as the triumphal entry. Now, it may be more obvious to each one of us how we follow Christ in testing. Uh, we all experience daily testing, trials, Daily, we're tempted to question God's faithfulness and goodness, yet Christ's complete dependence on God's plan and purposes provides an example for us to follow. Following Christ in self-denial, that seems straightforward too, right? Um, We are primarily concerned about ourselves, we watch out for number one. It's pretty straightforward, not easy, but at least it's clear uh, how we're able to do that. Christ clearly states, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Prayer. Uh, Christ exemplified utter dependence on God in prayer, providing for daily needs, spiritual life. Um, It's easy for us to see how Christ, we can follow after Christ in this way, yet uh, all of this review raises, I think, an important question. How do we follow Christ in the triumphal entry? Um, how do we follow Christ in the triumphal entry? It's probably not a passage that many of us reference in uh, discipleship talks or spiritual growth discussions. Yet, here in the passage in Luke 19 this morning, there are several important truths to be understood that will directly impact our walk with Christ, how we walk with Christ, how we follow Christ. Stated directly, Christ's triumphal entry as the one true king leads us to the cross, where our only reasonable, reasonable response is genuine worship. And so for this reason, that's why I've titled the sermon this morning, Following Christ our King. Our text is Luke 19, verses 28 through 40, so turn there with me if you would, Luke nineteen twenty-eight through 40. And what we're going to continue to review this morning, the main idea is this, following Christ our King leads to a cruciform life of worship. Following Christ our King leads to a cruciform life life of worship. So Luke 19, starting in verse 28, please follow along with me as I read. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. he replied. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Christ's focus as he begins his journey into Jerusalem in this passage, uh, which is in many ways a point of no return, uh, is fulfilling the promised plan of God on the cross. And the faithful Christian life exemplified by Christ himself is cruciform. Now, that might be a unique word to to you or a new word. Uh, You probably know by now I enjoy uh, using uh, strange and obscure words when I preach. I hope you, um, you probably ignore them like my wife does, but in this sense, understand cruciform simply means cross-shaped. Just a fancy way of saying cross-shaped. Uh, it is formed by and like the work of Christ on the cross. Following Christ our King then leads to a cross-shaped life of worship. Our entire life, our thoughts, our actions, our speech, our vocations must be intentionally fashioned by the cross of Christ, cruciform. And that's the first important truth revealed in Luke 19 today. Our one true king leads the way to the cross. Our one true king leads the way to the cross. And that's found in verses 28 through 34. Generally, the account here in Luke, the triumphal entry, can be divided into two sections. The preparation for entry into Jerusalem, in verses 28 through 34 and the acts of worship in response to this procession found in verses 35 through 40 the preparation for the response for the procession and the response to the procession uh, it's in this first section where we find Christ's focus on the task laid before him the cross we notice this from Jesus's complete knowledge and obedient orchestration for what lies ahead for him in Jerusalem The events of the coming week aren't unexpected to him and uh, Jesus knows exactly what he's writing to. In fact, there are events that are set, set in motion before the foundations of the world. That's the way that scripture describes it. And he repeatedly and resolutely here in this passage shows commitment to this plan. Jesus is directing the sequence of events that leads directly to his death. Like the testing in the wilderness, here's another chance. For Jesus to direct events for his personal advantage. What does he do then? He reinforces his commitment to the cross, God's plan from the foundation of the world, and he provides, Jesus provides an example of living a cross-shaped, cross-focused, cruciform life. He exemplifies perfect obedience. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, again, he begins to direct events near Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, some two miles outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus sends some disciples to procure an animal for his entrance into the capital. Verses 30 through 34 describe the clear and precise directions given by Jesus. The disciples are to untie the animal, and if anyone asks, why are you doing this, which is quite a natural question to ask when someone's untying your animal, right? Right? Uh, they're simply to say, the Lord needs it. Culturally, a dignitary could pro- procure use of property when they're making an entry, so this isn't entirely out of the question. But there's still a sense in the passage of a supernatural control on Jesus' part to know what would happen. The disciples do just as Jesus instructed them, And everything happens just as Jesus said it would. This sense of knowing the future adds a mood of anticipation to the passage here. And Jesus shows complete commitment to the plan established by God for his life. There's no alteration, no amendment, no retreat, but complete obedience. And while Jesus acted in a kingly manner, uh, commandeering or acquiring this animal... Uh, He picked a rather lowly animal to choose. Uh, Officials did use donkeys, uh, but they typically used them for civil, not military, processions. Culturally, in fact, this would have been polar opposite to what a king would have done entering the capital. Uh, The name of the game was pomp and circumstance, was flashy, big, huge uh, ordeals. And it becomes a bit of that over time, but uh, Jesus chooses a cult to enter the city in. And this is a clear indication of the kind of work Jesus will do when he's in the city. Instead of showing might or force, instead of an over-the-top spectacle, Jesus coordinates an entrance as a meek and peaceful king. Consider how Jesus weeps over the city after, uh, after this passage in, in Luke 19.42. He says, If you, even you, had known on this day that I would bring you what? Peace. Peace. Jesus is the king of kings, but he's also the prince of peace. Recall the promise of Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, so he is a king. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Jesus starts toward Jerusalem with a carefully planned commitment to peacefully and meekly attend to the Father's business not for personal comfort or in a show of might, but faithfully to fulfill God's redemptive plan. He maintains focus on the plan before him, and that's the cross. The choice of the cult itself is also prophetic fulfillment because over 500 years earlier, Zechariah had promised that the Messiah would come riding on the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus fulfills the promises of God, humbly and righteously leading the way to the cross. What was promised throughout the Old Testament prophets is now being accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus' obedience proclaims God's Faithfulness. The pro- prophetic fulfillment of this unridden colt also reveals another important aspect of Jesus's work that He's indicating with these choices. You see, while the unridden colt would probably have drawn their minds in this day to the kingly processions of Solomon and Jehu, if you read the Old Testament, that's how they entered the cities, the city of Jerusalem. Um, the unridden animal also symbolizes purity. The Mosaic law demanded animals that had never been yoked or worked to provide acceptable, pure sacrifices. Only unyoked or unworked animals could carry the Ark of the Covenant. So do you see the picture then? Christ, our King, leads the way to the cross as a pure and acceptable sacrifice for all mankind, carrying the new covenant with him in his body and blood. He is the acceptable sacrifice, leading mankind to the place of redemption that he himself will fulfill and complete on our behalf. Our king leads us to the cross where he bears the full brunt of God's wrath for you and for me. And he doesn't alter, he doesn't change, he fulfills God's plan. So we, as his children follow him in this cross-shaped obedience. Bearing the cross, acceptively, accepting and actively pursuing God's plan, knowing God's purpose for our existence. So then, what shape does your life take? The symbol of Christ's triumphal entry here in Luke 19 is the cross. It's cruciform. Our one true king leads us to the cross, and every true believer follows him in this way? Or is your life shaped more by money? Would it be a dollar symbol? Success, comfort, fame, relationships, pleasure, the list goes on and on. I could stand here all day probably, and I'm sure you don't want me to do that. I know I don't want to do that. But reflect. What what shape does your life take? Where are you at not exercising obedience to God? Jesus was completely and faithfully obedient, completely faithful to God's plan. Are you? It's quite safe to assume that each of us, I know I do, <laughs> have an area where we're not exercising complete and utter obedience in this way. Jesus leads us to the cross. Do you faithfully follow him there? His obedience displayed God's faithfulness. What does your life display? Also, what kind of king is Jesus to you? Jesus is a humble king, pursuing the praise and glory of God alone, submitting himself to the cross when offered yet another chance to plan things out differently for himself. When he had the chance for his entrance to take the shape of a sword. Or a scepter or a crown, he chooses the shape of a cross. Are you okay with your life taking that same shape? It's hard. I know it is. I'm not asking these questions because it's easy, it's difficult, it requires sacrifice. Or maybe you're going along with Jesus in the hope that somehow he's going to fulfill your hopes and dreams. Have you even considered why you're following him? <laughs> why you're here this morning? Throughout the Gospels, the disciples continue to believe that they knew what Jesus was doing. Even better in some instances than he knew what he was doing, right? Jesus, uh, Peter correcting Jesus is the, the most common story of that. Repeatedly, they ignored or misunderstood, to be a little bit kinder, uh, Jesus' pretty clear proclamations of his death. They didn't get it. The cross is difficult, bloody, and degrading. Yet, our life must take this shape if we hope to be true followers of Christ. He leads us to the cross. Do you follow him there? A good way to determine also if your life is cruciform is simply to ask yourself this. What do I do when Jesus doesn't behave the way I expect him to? It's very difficult when God shows how untamed he is. When I think of this, I often think of uh, the story of Job. Um, Remind yourself of God's answers to Job sometime. Uh, In the book of Job, chapters 38 through 42, uh, God gives a a frightening series of questions and answers again and again and again that that spread over four chapters, 153 verses. God gives this monologue. I mean, granted, the book is a list of monologues, but God's questions and answers are pretty startling. And and let me pretty much shorten it out for you in this way. God is not obligated to give an answer for his actions. Yet, don't mistake this for some kind of unpredictability, that he's deceitful or changing or unknowing or out of control. Simply because you and I don't grasp his reasons for doing things doesn't mean he doesn't have good reasons for doing them. We may just not grasp them yet. He's not malicious or confused or powerless or ignorant. No, he is God and we are not, quite simply. Christ's triumphal entry and careful control of each aspect and complete dedication to the plan of God reveals the the shape our life must also take. His entrance defied so much expectation for him, Yet he reveals a life in complete commitment to God's sovereign plans. It's the example that we're supposed to emulate, a cross-shaped life, cruciform life. Following Christ our King to the cross forces our life to take this shape, a very particular shape. As the humble and compassionate King, he orchestrated the events of his life in willing submission to God's plan, even to the point of death. And Jesus provides not simply an example, a kind of step-by-step approach, but he follows a way of life that we are supposed to pursue, a kind of disposition. The triumphal king, the king of creation, he is the king who leads us to the cross. The triumphal entry in Luke 19 continues to affirm God's victory over the world, yes, and this prompts us to See a second truth in this passage. The response to the entrance that Jesus gives, the proper response, and that's this Our one true king deserves all worship and all honor. Our one true king deserves all worship and all honor. We see this in verses 35 through 40. You know, as Jesus is riding toward Jerusalem, there are two pretty clear and short, in many ways, responses to his entrance. The two responses come from the disciples and the crowd that begins to gather around them and the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees it has here uh, in this text. And views that could really not be any more opposed or or distinct from one another. The two responses in many ways mark poles to the response to Jesus' kingship and call the world, call us to examine what Jesus is to us. What is our response to what Jesus is Verse 35 reveals that the disciples regard Jesus as the promised king through whom God has been working great miracles, powerfully. It's been evidenced through miracles throughout his ministry. In him is peace and glory, the presence of gracious authority from heaven itself. Verse 39 reveals that the Pharisees, on the other hand, see such claims as exaggerated, claims that Jesus should just deny outright, Yet, what is Jesus' response? If they keep quiet, the stones would cry out. Jesus, very humbly, yet very directly, declares that worship should and will happen. The only question is, who or what will be shouting praises to God? So, verses 35 and 36 reveal the response of the disciples and the crowd to the triumphal entry. Spreading cloaks on the road uh, is culturally an act of homage uh, recall 2 Kings 9, verse 13, where Jehu is entering Jerusalem. They all cast their cloaks on the staircases uh, as a, a, a proclamation of his kingship. Um, as anticipated, uh, this act is very Jewish in response to Jesus' kingship. And yet, unlike Matthew's account, you'll recall there's palm branches, right? Hence, Palm Sunday. Luke makes no mention of the spreading of these branches. Why does he do that? Uh, probably due to the It was intensely an act of Jewish nationalism for these palm branches to be cast. And so Luke, as an author primarily appealing to a Gentile audience, thank you, Luke, uh, he likely leaves these out. Yet, even without the details of the palm branches, uh, the giving of the cloaks is still a convincing symbol of honor and submission and worship. Consider these people spontaneously gave the clothes off their back put them on the ground and put them on a donkey for the sake of Christ. Casting cloaks is an act of royal celebration and the disciples, the people following the procession, pick up on the kingly aspects of Jesus' procession and this incites the only appropriate response and that's worship. Along with the regal recognition and casting cloaks, there's also spontaneous worship that's proclaimed in verse 38. uh, Where blessing falls on the king from Psalm 118. They reference Psalm 118 where the the psalm echoes messianic hope that a king will come, a procession will come in the name of the Lord. So they say here, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The reference to the king here, I was read this morning, isn't in the original psalm. You'll notice when it was read this morning, it's just he. So here they add the king, but still the psalm itself probably still depicts a king entering Jerusalem, entering the temple for worship. In Psalm 118, the king is greeted by the priests of the temple with the recognition that he has come to worship and serve God alone. The psalm was also sang in in worship as part of a praise celebration in association with Passover. So it's a well known and fitting celebration for the disciples in this moment. The disciples, echoing the words of the psalm, give a fitting response to Jesus' kingly entrance. And worship. So quite poignantly, they shout a Passover psalm to worship the Lamb of God, who definitively fulfills all the redemptive promises of the Passover. The second statement in Psalm uh, in verse thirty-eight, "Peace in heaven and glory in the highest," uh, seems to be a reference back to the praise directed uh, on a hill in Bethlehem th- some thirty years ago where the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom favor rests. This kind of praise further affirms that this King Jesus, the one true King, retains God's favor and his authority is divinely given. What the angels declared at the beginning of Jesus' life, men echo at the end. But yet men's echo is, is, is not necessarily because they fully understand or fully understand recognize or fully claim all that jesus is doing after all the angels declared peace on earth here is peace in heaven why the difference well even though what jesus has done is not fully recognized by all in this passage there is still peace in heaven why because god's promised plan has been fulfilled Men need not recognize the complete work of Christ fully for it to still be true. After all, the salvation that Christ wrought is ultimately for the glory of God. It's an assault on God's honor. Sin is. It's very theocentric, not man-centered, anthropocentric. And Jesus is king over all men, whether they admit it yet or not. One day, All men will bow before him. Recall the language of Philippians, our previous study. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. These two statements in verse 38 reveal the first and more fitting response to Jesus as king. While verses 35 through 38 provide a positive example of worship, verses 39 and 40 provide the contrasting picture. Luke only provides a, really a short account, yet I don't think we really need much more than that. <laughs> Frankly, especially if you read the rest of the book, it's not surprising how the Pharisees respond, right? Uh, the account is pretty straightforward, and the contrast is pretty stark. When faced with the same facts, the same pre- procession, the same prophetic sources, the same national and religious history, the Pharisees reject Jesus. Again, Not a terrible surprise, but a pretty powerful contrast nonetheless. They didn't ask Jesus even to just simply dampen the excitement. They didn't ask, okay, Jesus, just tone it down a little bit. You're a little loud. Quiet the crowd. Or or maybe just to slightly modify what he was doing. No. They asked Jesus to reprimand, to rebuke his disciples for doing this. They clearly and unequivocally deny fully his messianic kingship, And chasten him to then tell his disciples to to be chastened for their silly ignorance. It's pretty brazen. It's pretty bold. And yet simply, uh, Jesus doesn't respond by, no, I won't do that. Uh, What does he declare? He declares the universal demand for worship and honor to be directed to God. If they keep quiet, the stones would cry out, he says in verse 40. Worship isn't a secondary issue then, but a fundamental concern of all created order. Christ is king and he humbly declares the universal necessity for all worship to be declared and directed to God alone. So then, very simple question. Do you see Christ as king? For me, this is the first and and really most direct question raised by this entire passage. Christ clearly identifies himself as God's chosen, God's anointed king. Don't miss that here. Jesus does come humbly. His entire incarnation is an act of humility, as Philippians 2 declares beautifully. He does come to sacrifice his life to fulfill God's plan. But he also comes as the king of all creation. Let there be no misunderstanding at this point. His entrance is a humble one, marked by peace and sacrifice on the cross, yet he is still the king. If not a king, then who do you think Jesus is? What is Jesus to you? I'm sure this might be a, maybe a funny way of asking it. Maybe you've never been asked that way before. But understand the nuance uh, here. Is Jesus really the king of kings to you? Really? I think your life would look a little bit differently. I know my life would. Is he a king or some kind of literary figure, a book that we read? Some guy gets up and talks about it on Sunday, the guy being me. My parents talk about it. My spouse talks about it. I kind of think about it. Or is he the Lord of your entire life? The whole narrative structure of this passage challenges us to ask ourselves where we place Jesus is he the humble king of peace or and glory, or isn't he? Is he your king, or have you replaced him with inferior tyrants? Pleasure, money, relationships, sex, comfort. The saddest thing that can happen is that we believe a lie that somehow we'd be happier without Christ as Lord of our life. And that's just not true. It's an old lie. It's a good one, successful one, but it's a lie, nonetheless. Who or what is leading you then? If not Christ, then who or what? What, what, is, what defines your life? The symbolism of the disciples and the crowds casting cloaks, it extends far beyond some kind of culturally bound act of submission, humility and exaltation. Consider what it is that you would sacrifice everything to obtain. What do you worship? What do you exalt? What are you terrified of losing? What entertains you? We live in an entertainment culture, right? What what entertains you tells a lot about your life. What you believe. Who's Lord of your life? What do you worship? We all worship something. Worship Christ alone. And what is your response to this real and actual truth that Christ is king of all, whether you like it or not? There are two responses here in this passage. Um, do you fear in an unhealthy sense, not in a kind of righteous, godly fear? Do you, are you afraid? Does it worry you that Christ is king? you worried what that means for you? Do you hate it? Do you even care? <laughs> Does it matter to you? Your response to Jesus is the single defining choice of your entire life. There are eternal consequences for that choice. Do you accept him as savior and king or do you reject him? Those are the only two responses. There's, there's no ambivalence or kind of wishy-washy middle ground that we can kind of take. That's it. You either accept him or you reject him. And we may not think we're so bold as the Pharisees as to tell Jesus to his face what he should do. Yet isn't that exactly what we do when we deny him the worship, praise, commitment, time, energy, love that he deserves? We are telling him what he does and does not deserve. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. Pray that God will reveal this truth in our lives. In your life, pray for me and my life. Because it's a difficult thing to do. But it must happen. Christ is king and Lord of all. And as Christians, we serve a particular kind of king. The kind of king who leaves the glories, the riches, the comforts of divine fellowship in heaven to take on human flesh. He endured pain, fatigue, poverty, loneliness, and humble obedience to the Father. He's the kind of king who patiently and repeatedly teaches slow learners. I take great comfort from that as a student. Jesus was such a patient teacher. God is so patient and faithful. That's the kind of king we serve. And he repeatedly teaches even when his popularity mutated into a hostility that would result in the cross. We serve the kind of king who knows our frailties then. He knows our fears, our failures, our weaknesses. We serve a a king who journeyed from the highest heaven to the lowliest position on earth for you and for me. Surely this king, (laughs) surely this king deserves all honor and all praise and all glory. It's the only reasonable response. And following him changes the shape of our desires, our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations. Following him, truly following him, will only generate worship. Following Christ our king Leads to a cruciform, cross shaped life of worship. Our one true king leads us to the cross. Prayerfully consider whether you have accepted the cross as the shape of your life, your only source of peace with God. Because Christ's cross changes the entire shape of our lives, everything. If you've truly bought into it, it will because that's God's promise, not because we somehow generated ourselves because that's God's promise and he is faithful to us. We either accept or reject the cross and we either worship him as king or we resist his rule. Allow the cross to shape your life. Submit to his rule and worship him alone. As we enter Holy Week, a wonderful time of the year, reflect on the shape of your life. And take it as as an opportunity to renew a heart of worship to our king who gave so much for us, all that he has accomplished for his chosen people. Let's pray. God, you are so faithful to us. You are so kind. You are holy and just. And you sent your son to die in our place. He leads us to the cross and may our lives take that same shape. May the life, death, and resurrection of Christ become the defining feature of our daily choices. Continue to connect by your Spirit's power, the gospel, to our daily living, our work, our families, our desires. And may God, our life be symbolized and and be a portrait of worship to you in every moment of every day. We can only do this through your Spirit's power, so we graciously and humbly ask for it now. Knowing that you will you will keep your word to us, you hear us, you listen, and you answer. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.